0: Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, we're in our journey through the Gospel of Luke and we've made our way here to uh, the beginning here of chapter 6. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses and this week we'll look at verses 12 through 19, Lord willing, and Look at the calling here that Jesus has for these men. And so let me ask, as I begin, what should you look for in a leader? What qualities need to exist in a leader? Should we look for leaders who are well-liked and well-qualified? Have you ever considered that Jesus offers us a radically different understanding of what it means to be a leader? His views of leadership often steer drastically off the path of the typical American view of leadership. For example, in America, credentials qualify a person to be a leader. But for Jesus, the chief qualification is character. In America, what matters most is results. But for Jesus, it matters most what kind of person we're becoming. In America, success is measured most clearly in the material accumulation and power and respect and the positions that we hold. But for Jesus, success is measured not by consumption and, and accumulating, but by generosity and humility and the way we serve others. In America, it's shameful to come in last and praiseworthy to come in first. But for Jesus, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In America, leaders need to make a name for themselves to be famous and and, and recognized and respected. But for Jesus, leaders make only one name famous, his name. And we treat our positions and ability as means to the end of glorifying God and not ourselves. In America, the strong, the powerful, the well-connected rise to the top. But for Jesus, the meek, Inherit the earth. Friends, do you see the difference? It's the ordinary that God chooses. Abraham Lincoln said, God must have liked ordinary people because he made so many of them. What we find in the Bible is the most influential leaders were imperfect, uncredentialed men and women who who would never be the candidate for, for who's who or the VIP list. Joseph was disowned by his brothers and thrown into Egyptian prison. Later, he'd become the prime minister of Egypt. Noah, a man who got drunk and passed out naked, rescued all the species on earth from extinction. Abraham, at times a a cowardly husband and dysfunctional father, became the spiritual forerunner of all who have faith. Isaiah, a preacher who was rejected by his contemporaries and sawed in half at his execution, became one of the most influential voices in the history of the world. And David, the youngest of seven brothers and son of an obscure shepherd, became the king of Israel and the writer of over half of the Psalms. And what we see time and again in the word of God is God chooses ordinary people. And that's what we find in our text this morning. And Jesus' way of establishing this new church movement that will revolutionize the world, it comes through ordinary people. And so here's the main idea. Here's the, the one sentence. If you write down anything this morning, this is what you should write down. Jesus chooses whom he wills through intercession with the Father for the glory of God to all nations. Jesus chooses whom he wills through intercession with the Father for the glory of, of God to all nations. Jesus has the authority to choose whom the Father wills after depending on him in prayer. And his choices here of who he selects will change the world. This choosing of 12 men was momentous in, in, in importance for the nation of Israel and for the church. His 12 apostles were named in implicit reference to their call to minister to the 12 tribes of Israel. Ultimately, their names would be preserved in the very architecture of heaven, as Revelation 21, 14 says. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This selection of men is is of great importance to the church and to the plan of God for all the nations. And so we're going to walk through verses 12 through 19 this morning, which leads right up to the precipice of Jesus' sermon through the rest of chapter 6. It's a significant sermon, and Lord willing, we'll look at that sermon for the next five Sundays. But this morning, we're not going to get there. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19, and here's the three points as we look at the text. First, we'll look at Jesus' dependent prayer in verse 12. Second, Jesus' calling of ordinary men in verses 13 through 16. And Jesus' display of ministry in verses 17 through 19. So if you haven't turned already, turn to Luke chapter 6. And if you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, uh, the, the large number is the chapter numbers, and the small numbers look like little footnote numbers, but those are the verses. So follow with me, and we're going to begin here in verse 12. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. We, last week, we left off in verse 11 as he's, as he's setting the stage of something new coming, and he's dealing with the Sabbath, and, and Luke now is making a turn in the story by stating that in these days, he went out, which, which refers to an interval in Jesus's ministry when the opposition was, was really at its peak. We have to look back to see what he means. If we go back to the last chapter in chapter 5, we see the wall of opposition that Jesus's ministry is building from the religious leaders. From the start of Luke 5, 17, the religious religious leaders opposed him when he healed the paralytic. They opposed him for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. They opposed him for allowing his disciples to eat grain while on the Sabbath. They opposed him for, for healing on the Sabbath. One event after another, their opposition is building stronger and stronger against Jesus Christ, but it reaches a breaking point in verse 11. See verse 11 there. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They are literally filled with senseless rage. That's what it means to be filled with fury. Senseless rage against Jesus for all that he's doing. And Jesus' display of authority threatens their facade of authority. Something new has come and they're intimidated by this. And they want him out. His ministry is growing, and with that growth, hostility comes. And so what do we find in verse 12? Jesus steps away to pray with the Father for the purpose of calling others to join him with the Father is going to do. I don't know if you realize this, but every ministry on earth is an interim ministry. I am your interim pastor. For however long the Lord has me here, in the ministry you serve, it's interim and Jesus knows that his ministry is not always going to be there. He, he has, he's not always going to spend time with them. And so he calls others to join him in this interim ministry. And as we saw in the last chapter, not all ministry is roses. There's challenges. So Jesus calls these men to come alongside, which I'm sure brings a necessary community with Jesus now to share this burden as the hostility increases. But before he calls men, he goes to the Father in prayer. The French philosopher Montaigne said, the greatest thing in the world is to be self-sufficient. Do you believe that? The greatest thing in the world is to be self-sufficient. Well, it seems to be true here in our world and in America. People seem to love that. We love the stories of people who begin with nothing and pull their lives together by themselves and accomplish something great, something significant. Whether it's a career as a musician or an author or an athlete, a self-made millionaire or creator, artist, inventor, all of these seem to inspire people in America, people in the world. And that's what our world seems to define as success, self-sufficient individuals seeking self glorification but that's not what we see with Jesus. It's not what he's preaching or even practicing. He, he leaves the, the busyness of ministry to spend time with the Father. And Jesus' authority to call men to join him in ministry is firmly rooted in prayer. It says that all night he continued in prayer to God. Jesus understood that if he's going to save people, it was necessary to get away for private prayer with the Father. And what's most arresting in Luke's description here is that all night he continued in prayer to God. I believe this is the only time we read of Jesus praying all night. He goes to the mountain to pray and he spends the entire night talking with the Father. If he began after sundown, say 8 o'clock, and prayed until sunup at 6 a.m., that's 10 hours in focused prayer. In the Greek, the word translated, all night, he continued expressed a persevering energy. And why did Jesus spend so much time in prayer with the Father? Because he had a huge decision to make in regards of who would be the 12. Jesus was a human being just like us, except he was without sin. And though he was God, he placed the exercise of his attributes, mainly his omniscience, at the discretion of the Father. So he didn't possess all knowledge. And so he needed to rely on the Father. And furthermore, as we'll see in a few moments, he had a lot of disciples following him. So it's conceivable that he spent that time talking about all of those that were following him. But why did he pray? And what we learn from this is that he relied on the Father for all things. Luke makes this mention over and over again through his gospel that prayer was everything to Jesus. He would not live this life apart from dependent prayer with the Father. Jesus didn't pray just to check it off the list. He had to pray to talk with the Father. Friend, do you ever feel like you're too busy to pray? If so, then you're too busy. Jesus had a lot to do in ministry. He had a lot of people clamming after him, yet he took the time to spend away from others to spend with the Father. Perhaps you feel like you don't need to pray. If so, friend, I would be so bold to say you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. If you and I, who are deeply flawed, weak people, And he, the son of God, thinking that he needs more prayer, the busier he got, how much more do we need to pray? Maybe you've come to the point in your life where everything is going really well and you're incredibly productive. Where there's so many opportunities, and and you're very busy, and a very good kind of busy, and and people want to see you, and you're helping, you're accomplishing so much in this world and for God's kingdom. And so what happens then? You begin to squeeze out prayer. But here's Jesus standing in the middle of the greatest opportunity that was literally going to change the world. His opportunities were literally going to change the course of history And he believes that prayer was too important to let it get squeezed out of his life. If Jesus thinks it's that important, if if it's that big of priority, if he increases his prayer when busyness increases, then where do we get off living the way that we live? What right do we have to push prayer to the fringes of our life? We need to see prayer as the same priority that Jesus sees it. Nothing else is more important. Nothing else can push it to the side. Nothing else has a higher priority. Not even changing the world forever. Prayer trumps everything. Prayer needs to be everything to us as well. I mean, the spiritual logic here is inescapable. The Son of God could not function without dependent prayer. How much more is it essential for us as adopted sons and daughters? And what foolishness if we say that we need to pray, acknowledging that it's important, and then we don't do it. What arrogance to understand Jesus' necessity to pray, but reject it for ourselves. Too often in our lives we do not engage in dependent prayer but but we engage in routine prayer. Remember friends Jesus didn't say in John's gospel apart from me you can do some things. He said apart from me you can do nothing. We are the branch. He is the vine. We're to abide in him, we're to dwell in him. To live in him with everything. And that's through prayer, friends. And listen to this. This is the good news. There are no appointments necessary to spend with God. You come as you will. Think about that. We have a much tougher time trying to just organize schedules with one another, right? Right? To try to get on the same page of their calendar, but that's never the case with God. If you need to talk with God, He's always there. He's always listening. He just invites us all the time. And what a great God that we serve. Our Creator God, who beckons us to come to Him in prayer. And friends, we, we can't abandon this joy. And may we seek to grow in our time that we spend with the Lord each week in prayer. May we be found dependent upon God like we see Jesus here. That's my first point. Second, Jesus' calling of the ordinary men. Look at verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon who we named Peter and Andrew his brother and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who was called a zealot and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. The twelve are chosen in the context of humility and prayer and guidance. They were presently to be sent out as Messiah's official emissaries to the nation. Their very number twelve being matched to the number of tribes of Israel and Luke says that he named him apostles, the word is taken from the Greek word uh, com, uh, composing of two: the prefix of apel, which means out of or from, and the root stella, which means to send. So, so an apostle, apostle literally means as one who is sent. It's closely related to the Hebrew word, to shaleach, which at the time of Christ referred to an official representative in the Jewish community. And this representative had the authority to, to speak and to act for someone else. And a modern day example would be the power of attorney that we, that we have and we see here that authorizes a personal representative to sign legal documents or the authority to, of an ambassador that he has to sign a treaty for his country. And the question that I had as I read this is what qualified these men to serve as apostles? Apostles. All of them were disciples. They were, they were the ones who following Jesus. There was a large group that we read later. But what distinguished these 12? They were not religious leaders. They were not well-educated or well-connected or even well-funded. Instead, people regarded them as unschooled and just plain ordinary men. They would not be on the list as most desirable leaders. We don't know in the order in which Jesus called out their names. Luke lists their names with Peter. Peter always seems to head the list in all of the New Testament accounts. And Judas always is named last. But when Jesus calls them, they're unknown. But today, every name on the list has a notable ring. Even Bartholomew and Jude. But then, no one knew who these men were. They were not outstanding because of any natural talents or intellectual abilities. On the contrary, they were all too prone to mistakes and misstatements and wrong attitudes and lapses of faith and failure. Jesus even remarks later in the gospel that they were slow learners and somewhat spiritually dense. And this group even spanned the political spectrum. How's that hit you? One was a former zealot, a radical. Even seen as a terrorist, determined to overthrow the Roman rule. Another was a tax collector, supporting the Roman rule. R- Republican and Democrat. And I wonder how their conversations were walking on the road as they ministered, right? At four of them at least, maybe even seven, were, were fishermen by trade. Some were possibly close friends and colleagues, maybe even knowing each other since they were kids. Most of them were from Galilee. Galilee. But all of them were woefully unqualified for the position. No one seemed qualified for the job of an apostle. I found a funny illustration in my files this week, a fictional letter written to Jesus as if he hired some management consultants before calling his men. This is what it says. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you're undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of anger. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered high on the score of manic-depressive scale. But one of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. I wonder how accurate that really is. God's way is not always our way. Jesus chooses ordinary men to serve with him. People like us who would be the leaders of the early church. And the leaders here don't emerge by accident or by voting. They were hand-picked by God. Jesus personally selected each one of them after spending the night in prayer with the Father. As far as we can see in the New Testament, no one was famous or rich or noble or highly connected. No one was a Pharisee or a scribe or a priest or a ruler or even an elder among the people. All were apparently unlearned and ignorant men. And so what do we learn from this? Why would God select those with sketchy backgrounds and non-qualifying marks for ministry. It shows us that our Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom was entirely independent of help from this world. There was no man on this list whose background and training would make them an obvious choice for this task. It's unlikely that any rabbis in first century Palestine were intentionally recruiting a band of fishermen and tax collectors to be in their inner circle. But Jesus already told us that he hasn't come for those of what the world considers righteous and important. And Jesus chooses them, and he, he wanted to make the point very clear, like when he caught the fish, and when the man was healed in chapter 5, he wanted to make the point clear that he is the point, Jesus is the point, not those who follow him, not pastors or parishioners, but Jesus. He's the point. He's the son of man. He's the bridegroom. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And they were going to be sent out as apostles, but they would all point to him. They were remarkably unremarkable. And that brings the most glory to God. But maybe you're asking, I know I did at the end, why did he choose Judas? I don't know exactly. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe he selected Judas so that Jesus could fully experience what humanity has experienced. You and I have been acted against. We've all been betrayed in some way. You've felt the sting of someone very close to you turning away and leaving you and even trying to take you down as they leave. Jesus came as a normal man to normal men. When he, with him choosing Judas, he understood what it means to be despised, to be rejected, to be scorned and slandered and embarrassed and falsely accused, and ultimately to be tortured and killed. See, Jesus betrays him, yes, but his friends will abandon him when he needs him most. Jesus knows this. I also think the choice of Jesus is meant to teach us leaders humility. Let the leader who thinks he stands on his own take heed lest he fall. But this choice also teaches church members of the church and not to make idols out of pastors. They are to esteem them highly in love for the work of ministry, but they're not to bow down to them or consider them infallible. We should honor our leaders, yes, but carefully under the honor that we ought to give God first. Jesus, Judas here also teaches us that converted and unconverted people will always be found mixed together in congregations. And we as leaders, we know this. It's one of the reasons why we preach the gospel every week. Because there are people in our midst right now who have no relationship with Jesus. They hear the warnings, they hear the gospel every week from this pulpit, but there is a new life. Judas heard all the teachings of Jesus. As we'll see, Lord willing, he he heard the sermon. He heard that there's a narrow road that leads to life and a broad road that leads to destruction. He heard the warnings Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. So he knew there was a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. He heard the parable of the prodigal son, so he knew God was ready to welcome and to forgive those who have wasted themselves in many sins. But ultimately, Judas rejected Jesus. He rejected the good news that Jesus was offering. So friend, don't choose the same path as Judas. If you've been attending church for some time or even logged on this morning online and you've never placed your faith firmly in Jesus, I implore you to do it this morning. Place your faith in Jesus and to keep your eyes on him. Even if your life is full of doubts, don't doubt Jesus. He has always been faithful to his word and he'll be faithful to you so, friend, keep trusting in him. Keep following Jesus until he takes you home. Well, what happened to these men? The New Testament talks about a few of them in greater detail, while other, others remained in obscurity. Tradition tells us that virtually every one of them met a horrible and violent death, except for John, who suffered other tragedies and humiliations before being banished as an old man to the Isle of Patmos. Tradition tells us that Bartholomew was crucified, that Thomas was thrust through a spear and killed. Simon the Zealot was crucified in the year 74 in Britain, and the rest suffered tremendously before being killed. Eleven men were faithful to Christ to the very end. One was never faithful to him. So may they and their lives be an encouragement to us as well. God chooses ordinary people for salvation and service. Last here is Jesus' display of ministry. Look at verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the, of the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who, who came to hear him and to be healed of the diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of from him and healed them all. Luke's account of the famous sermon on the mount seems to be following in, in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Matthew in his gospel tells us that the same sermon is preached in the mountain, but Luke says that Jesus came down and stood in a level place. So how do we resolve this issue? Well, one possibility is looking at the site most commonly held to be the place on the hillside outside of Capernaum, overlooking a valley. And so the slopes are more or less steeped and, and at various points are at level places. So it could mean that they're both having at the same site in mind, but from different vantage points. But it also could be that they're describing two different sermons, two different events. The content of the sermon is similar, but by no means the same. And just so you know, it's quite usual for preachers to give the same message more than once. Luke says a crowd gathered to hear Jesus preach and heal. And he says they came from all over, from Judea, from Jerusalem, and to the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And if you go home this afternoon and look at a map, or even if you pull it open in the back of your Bible now, you see where Judea and Jerusalem is and then look up and see Tyre and Sidon. Tyre is up in the area where Asher, the tribe of Asher, used to have its land, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. And Sidon is even further up, way out of the area that even constituted Israel. And this is significant, friends, because we begin to see the the expansiveness of Jesus' ministry. And, and, And we also get a tunnel focus on life and who the word of God is for. This is Luke's way of saying that people from Dan to Beersheba, people from all over Israel and even outside of it, where, where they're here to hear Jesus preach and to heal. And as my main idea said, Jesus chooses whom he wills through intercession with the Father for the glory of God to all nations. See, his ministry would not just be for Israel, but for, for the world. And for me, it's a, it's a picture of the Great Commission itself. The gospel is going to the very ends of the earth and all people responding to it. If we're not careful, we can become tunnel focused on life and ministry. We can begin to think that, that all of it, all of life, all that's going on is just about us. That's why we endeavor every week during the pastoral prayer, to pray for people other than ourselves. And, and we, 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 we try to start praying for the world and the issues of the world. And we work our way from the outside in. And so this morning, I prayed for Asia and for the country of Azerbaijan and to the nation and leaders. And then, then I came in to, to our own America And what's going on here And then I came in a little farther to, to a local church that's, that's not too far away And then I came in even closer to our local church And if we don't think of people outside of our local church Then we'll easily begin to believe that the gospel Is only for us And for our needs And we'll begin to think that We're the only ones that are important And we desire to and, and, and At Edgewood Bible to think of others As more important than ourselves and in this passage, Jesus begins the preaching ministry to teach others of the way to God. And he begin pointing people away from their hopes, resting on themselves, and to believe that God has sent him to live and die for them. And Christ's first advent was a mission of come and see what God is doing. And, and they came from everywhere. But as we read at the end of the gospels, Jesus's aim is for us to go and tell. Not just to wait for others to come and see. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He left one place and went to another place. He gave up the glories and comforts of his heavenly home in order to go where the people were and to tell them about the Father. And he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And so Christ expects all of his followers to go. We read in Matthew 28 and John 20 and Mark 16, that's the point For us as Christians, we're on a mission. And when I read Matthew 28 19 and 20, I can begin Jesus talking with his hands, because I talk with my hands, but I'm sure he did. To go, therefore, not as you're going, but to go, therefore, and make disciples. This is God's mission. He sends and He empowers and He produces the results. And what's the ultimate purpose of the mission? It's to bring glory to God so that a multitude from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language might declare the praise and glory and power of God for all eternity. I can't wait for heaven to be surrounded by people that look nothing like me. That's the mission. And we as believers, as Christians, participate in God's mission, not because God needs her work, but because He's called ordinary people to the work. Us, ordinary people. But God stands at the center of the mission. And if He's not at the center of your mission, then you're on the wrong mission. Well, our passage ends here in verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus evidently allowed healing to result, in those who merely touched him we will read about that later in the gospel. And the press of the people must have become frantic and and taxing the energies of the twelve and their friends. Yet Jesus' healing power was not the centerpiece of the day. Rather, it's the prelude to something far greater. The great power of what would happen when Jesus would die on the cross for sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you believe in the power of the gospel to save? If we believe the power of the gospel, then we would be around sinners and look for opportunities to share the gospel. If we believe the power of the gospel, then we would preach the gospel for spiritual change and not for numbers. If we believe the power of the gospel, then we will preach the gospel slowly and patiently. If the gospel is what does the work, then all we have to do, friends, is release it, and God will do the work. If we believe the power of the gospel, then we will preach the gospel to open eyes, not just give facts. If we believe the power of the gospel, then we would direct our fear of man to God. We would fear being unfaithful, more than being unfruitful fruitfulness lies in God's hands faithfulness lies in our hands with the spirit's help and if we believe the power of the gospel then we will be willing to die to self and to die for Christ friends that you and I have been given a life by God and are we spending it on ourselves or are we spending it on service to him Roswell Chambers said God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history God has chosen and used nobodies. Because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Friends, it's all about Jesus. It's all about serving him. So how can we apply this? Let me end here. With some application. What do we learn from this sermon? How do we apply it? Well, the first thing that came to mind is for church members. Church members here, if Jesus spent the whole night dedicated in prayer before choosing leaders for the church, how much more for us at Edgewood Bible Church do we need to spend time in prayer before choosing pastors and elders? When we bring an elder to you as the elder board, as we've saw time, it's it's done after much time of prayer and expectation then is for you, the church, to spend time praying. That's one of the reasons why we give you a month to consider and to pray that God would bring confirmation of this man for service to our local church. And so friends, when that happens, Spend time praying, just as we see Jesus doing here in this passage. The second thing to learn, the choosing of Judas is a warning to us who are leaders. Whether you lead a Bible study, or you're a deacon, or you serve as a pastor or elder, we're not immune from such horrible treachery. And it should humble us, should humble all of us. To walk with Jesus for three years and not get it. For those that don't believe or are not convinced in the choosing of God for salvation, Judas should be a wake-up call. He spent an incredible amount of time with the Savior, the Son of God, and he came away unchanged. If salvation were up to us, then we would all come away the same as Judas. God is the one who does the saving. And that doesn't negate our choice in following him. They always work together, friends. God chooses us and we choose him. They're not separate, but they're united for the Christian. And third, last, we also learn that one of the supreme glories of God's call is that our weakness is an opportunity for God's power. Our ordinariness is, makes room for his extraordinariness. And this is gloriously true as we see through the scriptures in the case of Moses and David and Jeremiah. And friends, it's true in every Christian. God chooses the ordinary for his glory. And we should rejoice in that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before your holy presence and we too confess with shame how often we have willfully deceived ourselves. How often we have experienced the eroding effect of neglecting the discipline of prayer. We confess with shame that we have dishonored you by forgetting you and trying to muscle our way through life. God, we ask that you would give us grace. That you would grow us. You'd wash us afresh in the blood of your Son and put into our hearts the resolutions and the strength to do whatever must be done. That we would be men and women who meet you in daily prayer. And when we rise from our knees, may we embolden then to take your gospel to a dying world. Father, it's so easy for us, it seems, to have blinders on, forgetting those that live among us. So we ask, we beg that you would increase our awareness of the dying world that live right next to us. Give us new eyes and a fresh love and heart to take the good news to those that need to hear it. And we do pray that you would receive all the honor and glory for our efforts in this world. All the glory be to Christ, our King. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.